True Crime friends, welcome back to True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary Pippi. First of all, I hope you are all having a wonderful week so far. If not, that really sucks and I hope it gets better for you. We are back, baby, after our two-week break. I am so excited. I feel relaxed a little bit, rejuvenated, ready to go. So... With that, let's talk about today's story. So this one I had found, I think it was on a Reddit feed, or maybe it was Facebook. I can't remember. It was one of those. And it was a feed about, like, what is the best documentary you had seen? And someone had commented with this documentary. It's called Dear Zachary, A Letter from a Son, or A Letter to a Son About His Father. At just over an hour, I feel like it does something that not many true crime documentaries have ever done, which is focus about on the life of the victim. And what's also interesting about this one is that the documentary itself was filmed by the victim's lifelong friend, Kurt Quinn. And it's just it's so touching to see all the home videos and, you know, just how Kurt Quinn puts this all together. But Obviously, it's very sad because the victim was murdered. So, you know. But again, like I said, it's really touching and gives a lot more respect in such a personal way that you don't see in really many other true crime documentaries. So for that, that's why I really liked this documentary. As weird as it is to say that you like watching the documentary of someone who got killed but I mean we're true crime fans that's why we're here right (laughs) so with that let's get into the case of the murder of Andrew Bagby Andrew Bagby was born on September 25th 1973 in Sunnyvale California to loving parents Kathleen or known as Kate and David Bagby Andrew had a normal childhood he had many friends most of whom he would keep through his adult life He was close with his family in the United States, and also he had family in London, England, which was his mother's hometown. Andrew was described by friends and family as determined, kind, outgoing, funny, and just overall a caring person. He was even a decent actor in his younger days, playing parts in his friend Kirk Quinn's films. You know, everyone loved him. The only bad thing anyone ever had to say about Andrew was his ability to rip really deadly farts, (laughs) which was something he owned up to. Despite not having been invited to apply to medical school after college, Andrew was determined to be a doctor, and that determination paid off. Life seemed pretty, like, going pretty well for Andrew, until sadly his fiance broke up with him. Friends of Andrew say that this breakup was, understandably, really painful for him. He had a really hard time moving on from that relationship. And during his third year at Memorial University Hospital in Newfoundland, Canada, he met another resident named Shirley Turner. Now, (laughs) we're going to discuss Shirley in a second. But 
Honestly, I mean, Andrew seems like an awesome dude. Like, I would want to hang out with him. You know, you see the home footage in this documentary, and it's hard not to want to be friends with this guy. Like, he just seems, like, so cool, and, like, he even seemed like a really decent actor. I mean, in the videos that Kurt made, and, like, you see, like, snippets here and there, and his acting is pretty good. I mean, I don't know that, you know, clearly he wanted to be a doctor, not that he would have pursued a career in acting, but if he did, I don't think he would have been that bad of an actor. Like, I think he could have possibly made a little bit of a career out of it. But, you know, again, like I said, he wanted to be a doctor. That's not what he wanted to do. Like I said, he just seems like this fun, adventurous human being. And he was willing to be in his friend's films, which was something I did as a teenager. Like, we I had a couple of friends of mine... In high school, we had to make films for projects and things like that. And I was always willing to do it. And it was always so much fun. You get to be someone else for a little bit with your friends. Be silly or, you know, get into this cool kind of character with them. It's just, a, it's a fun process to do with your, or to go through with your friends if you've ever done it. Um, but he just seems like the type of person who got along well with pretty much anyone. And... As we'll get on in this story, it kind of seems like his kindness, well, I shouldn't say it seems, his kindness definitely gets taken advantage of, and it's so sad. Now, let's get into Shirley Turner. Shirley Turner was a native of Newfoundland, and 12 years Andrew Sr. She had also two failed marriages behind her and had children from each marriage. Now, look, I'm not here to judge Shirley on her ability to you know stay in a marriage but and I'm not saying that these that that is a true depiction of her character even though we'll see in episode two it kind of is but in you know when things happen in hindsight you know hindsight's only 2020 and you can't see the future how things are going to work out so again not fully judging her on that fact or at least I didn't at first (laughs) but we will see that this definitely should have been more of a red flag than it was. So, Andrew's friends just didn't like Shirley. She would be overly sexual in her comments towards Andrew, which made everyone feel uncomfortable. However, none of them really viewed Shirley as a threat. So, they really didn't say too much. They were happy that Andrew was finally moving on. And secretly, Shirley was calling Andrew's ex fiance on a frequent basis, making inappropriate comments to her about their sex life. I mean, I know I said we shouldn't judge the previous marriage, and we shouldn't. We shouldn't judge her previous marriages at this point. But calling your partner's ex-fiance and brag about your sex life with them? I don't know. I would say that's a bit of a red flag just saying that's not normal behavior i if if you are in that situation oh please honeys please leave whoever that is that is a real red flag and that is some like stalker behavior so please it's not worth it just leave look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and 
What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, true crime friends. You've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, cre-cut, and custom home decor for reasonable prices. If you're looking for a one-of-a-kind gift or some new decor to add some new life into your home, look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. Um, if you guys haven't noticed, I'm like obsessed with Coraline and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Send her a DM and order today. In the year 2000, Andrew took a surgical residency in Syracuse, New York. He kept up his long-distance relationship with Shirley, who had taken a residency in Iowa. But Andrew was miserable during his surgical residency, and he left in the following year. In 2001, Andrew took a residency at a family practice in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Andrew fell in love with family medicine, and he really felt like it was his calling. During this time... Shirley and Andrew's relationship had soured, and Andrew decided that he was going to have to break things off with her. In the documentary, friends of Andrew state that Shirley had become more and more possessive of Andrew and was easily jealous. Still, no one suspected that Shirley was dangerous. Before the wedding of one of his best friends, where he was the best man, he told Shirley it wasn't working out, and he paid for her flight back to Iowa. Not even 24 hours later, Shirley was back in Pennsylvania, ringing Andrew's doorbell, wanting to speak to him. Again, not really a good sign. I mean, if you're paying to fly someone back home and they're back there within 24 hours knocking on your door, that's not a good sign. It's just, it's not. Um, again, if you're in that kind of a situation, maybe that kind of relationship, maybe you gotta... Get out of there, you know? Hmm. Again, very stalkery. Just, that's not good. It's not good. We know what happens with stalking and peeping. It usually always escalates. And it does in this case, sadly. A friend and colleague of Andrew's named Dr. Clark Simpson urged him not to meet with her. He even pointed out the insanity of Shirley Swift's return, like I just said. He told Andrew that if he were in Andrew's shoes... He would have called the police. But of course, Andrew, being naive, protested, saying, you know, no harm's going to come to him meeting with Shirley, and that he would come by afterwards for a drink around 7.30 to discuss what happened. Andrew was never late, and Andrew never showed up that night. So Dr. Simpson knew that something was wrong. The next morning, November 6, 2001, the members of the family practice Andrew was working at became extremely worried. Andrew was late and had missed their morning report. This behavior was completely out of character for Andrew. 
And Dr. Simpson and the other members of the family practice called Andrew, both on his cell and at his home phone number. Yes, because this was back when we still had landline home phone numbers, people. For any of you youngins out there who have never seen one, yeah, we had them. But, of course, there was no response. The family practice, they all stood around the television with the news station on. And after being told that a body dressed in scrubs was found at Keystone Park, a heaviness just fell over the room and all of the doctors huddled around the television. The residency director, Dr. John Bertolino, had been called away to a higher-ups office. Dr. Bertolino was met by three state police officers. Immediately, he knew this was about Andrew Bagby. Andrew's body was found in front of his car in the parking lot of Keystone Park. He had been shot five times. The practice staff gathered together as the news broke of Andrew's passing. Dr. Simpson said plainly, Well, you won't have to look far. And he told the cops of Andrew's meeting with Shirley that night before. And Dr. Simpson was confident that Shirley was responsible. And sadly, he was right. I mean, clearly we've seen that there are some red flags here. Again, as much as I don't want to judge her two failed marriages, and I want to tell you what happens, it's a story for part two of this case. But aside from that, we are seeing a lot of red flags from her. I mean, she's calling the ex-fiance. She's basically stalking him. I mean, you know, it's just... And he had broken up with her. And it seems that Shirley was pretty mentally unstable. More mentally unstable than I think Andrew had thought. And I'm glad that Dr. Simpson was able to see right through her. I mean, he knew that something was really wrong about this meeting and how it could have been dangerous. But still, I can can understand Andrew's, you know, naivete. You know, I don't think most people would suspect that the person you had dated, you know, someone you had spent a lot of time with, really got to know well, would have killed you. But sure enough, Shirley fucking did it. So in case I didn't make this clear, obviously hindsight is only twenty twenty, And there is no way that Andrew could have known that this was her plan all along. But sadly, this lapse in judgment cost him his life. And I'm not blaming him. I would never, ever blame the victim. I'm just saying, it's just one of those circumstances where you don't know how it's going to turn out unless you go. And if you don't think the threat level is as high as it actually is, how can that be your fault? You don't know. Like I said, hindsight is only 2020. You're only going to know until it happens. And sadly, like I said, this was a very fatal mistake for Andrew to have agreed to meet with her that is but again Shirley didn't have to kill him they could have just talked but she had to be a bitch Andrew sustained gunshot wounds to his head chest back and buttocks there are six rounds found at the scene they all came from a CCI 22 caliber weapon five casings were spent and there was one live round So I just want to let you know that, I mean, obviously 
you guys are true crime lovers, so you would know. But for those who don't know, a live round found at a scene is important because it means that there's some sort of malfunction issue with the weapon. Because that's like misfiring and it shouldn't miss a gun shouldn't misfire like that. So it is a huge piece of evidence because obviously you can find some a gun that shoots a 22 caliber, but if it's not misfiring, then it's not gonna match, you know, the weapon. So that is an important key detail in this case. And we will see about that in just a moment. So let's backtrack a little bit. A month prior, which was October, Shirley had purchased a Phoenix Arms HP 22 gun with 22 caliber ammunition and had started taking firearm lessons for protection and safety. The instructor of the firearms lesson told police that at Shirley's last lesson, she had been using CCI 22 rounds. And her gun would often misfire, ejecting live rounds. Huh! See what I mean there? Do we think that's a coincidence? Obviously fucking not. It's not a coincidence. Police spoke with her multiple times about Andrew's death. When questioned about her whereabouts the night of Andrew's murder, she claimed that she was homesick in bed. But her cell phone records proved otherwise. She even made one call to Andrew's home phone. The message is kind of disturbing, considering that she had just shot him five times, like a few hours earlier. And the police got Shirley to agree to turn over her gun to the local police department in Iowa, because, you know, the chain of custody, they would have brought it back to Pennsylvania. But anyway, but of course, of course, she was unable to produce the weapon because she, quote unquote, couldn't find it. Couldn't find it? Mm, she's pretty sure she disposed of it. I think what's annoying about this situation is that Shirley wasn't in Pennsylvania. So it's not like they could force her to produce this weapon. But as we can see, it, it gives her time. It gives her time to do what she wants. Whether she got rid of it, I still don't know. I don't think anyone knows. But it's also frustrating because, you know, had they had their hands on this weapon and they tested it they would have been able to build a stronger case against her. But because there is no weapon to tie to the crime scene, especially her weapon to tie to the crime scene, with solid evidence, not just circumstantial evidence, then they would have had a bigger case against her. And she sure as hell would have gotten locked up a hell of a lot quicker than she does, which is, we'll get into that next week, guys. After some time, Shirley left Iowa and moved back to Newfoundland, Canada. But she was still in contact with the police about Andrew's murder. Shirley's story changed multiple times after that. And in order, which was really just to combat the proof that was against her. Once the police found a loophole in her story, she would change her story so that way that loophole wouldn't exist. Ultimately, though, the police, thankfully, were able to make some sort of a case against her, and she was arrested in Newfoundland. Which, thank God. Thank God. Because, honestly, I will, you know, again, there is no murder weapon in this case. And, well, not that there isn't a murder weapon, obviously. There is a murder weapon. It's just 
it hasn't been tested. It hasn't been given to the police. Therefore, it cannot be used as evidence against her. Because technically, at that point, it's quote-unquote circumstantial. It is circumstantial that she has a weapon that she was learning to shoot for quote-unquote protection. It's a circumstantial evidence that it just so happens to be misfiring and ejecting live rounds. You know? Until they have that weapon, they can't, what with 100% certainty, say that it belonged to her. And that's really fucking frustrating. <laughs> Because again, circumstantial evidence, or at least the circumstantial evidence in this case, is very strong. So the fact that they just don't have that missing piece, it's really fucking frustrating. On February 7th, 2002, a huge bomb dropped in the lap of David and Kate Bagby, Andrew's parents. Shirley was four months pregnant with Andrew's baby. And this is where I leave you this week, my darlings. I know. Quite a bit of a cliffhanger. I know. And... uh, Why? Why? I can't imagine being Kate and David right now. Like, if I found out that the person who killed my child was now pregnant with their kid... I don't know where my mental state would be. I mean, that is literally the worst possible circumstance. Literally. It's it's probably worse than having, like, the devil's baby. I swear. Then again, I'm not Rosemary, so I wouldn't know. But instead, in this case, I would say that the devil is carrying the baby. You know? Oh, the plot thickens, my dears. Next week, we will talk about the legal bullshit that goes on with this case and how difficult it is to fucking arrest this woman and just uh, I would like to say that it gets better but sadly it does not thank you all so much for joining me on this week's episode it is a crazy one I'm glad to be back after the break I mean I hope your 2022 is going off to a great start but so far we've lost Betty White and Bob Saget and Sydney Poitier I'm not happy about this 2022, you suck so far. As far as killing off people I love. I don't like that. Anyway, if you can, please, please, please go over to our Patreon. I have it linked in the description below. If you can, please throw some money our way. We would really, really appreciate it. It helps us do what we do. And we would love you for it. And we're giving you some really awesome stuff. So please... Click on the link below, go to our Patreon, and become a member, and get some really cool extras. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and Instagram, and Facebook, and all of the things. We are the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Instagram and Facebook, and the Ivory Boiler Room on Twitter. We also have TikTok at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. For True Crime and Academia specifically... You can follow our Instagram at True Crime and Academia and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your week. It was really good being back. I've missed you guys. Please stay safe out there. I know COVID's viraling back up again, so protect yourselves, get vaccinated, wear your masks, 
stay away from people. People suck. You know, just just do all of the things. Keep yourself safe because I love you. And I want you to be happy and healthy and live in your best goddamn life. All right? I'll see you next week. True Crime in Academia is an Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Members of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room include Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, Chief Contributor, and Jaron Usta, Marketing Director. Don't forget to like, rate, follow, and subscribe to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on your favorite podcast platform. And go to our Patreon in the podcast description below to become a patron and have access to exclusive, never-before-seen content.